Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Pamela Hutchinson, film critic, journalist, and silent film historian. Hello, Pam. Hello, Sam. Thank you so much for talking to us tonight. Uh, big fan of your writing and your website, silentlondon.co.uk. I was just wondering, actually, because we're going to talk about, we're probably going to say the word silent cinema quite a lot over the course of this podcast. What, what do we mean when we say silent cinema? We are not talking about films with a sound turned off. If you want to make it sound really unexciting and uh, technically correct, you say dialogue-free cinema, but really, especially with what we're talking about today, because we're talking about you know, one of the greats of the era, we are talking about films made before synchronised sound came into cinema. So, oh, or without the use of it, because we're actually on the sort of historical borderline with this film. The Jazz Singer, the famous film that sort of ushered in the sound era, the talkies, that came out at the end of 1927. So anything made between the Lumiere brothers shooting trains in the 1890s and around about 1927, give or take a few years for everyone to get their head around the idea, silent cinema. Because you're, you're a film journalist, you, you cover all sorts of releases. I've heard you talk about new releases on, on podcasts, but silent cinema, you know, really, I guess, is your, your big area of expertise. When did the silent cinema bug uh, bite you? I really thought you were going to say, do you remember when sound came in or, or something like that? Um, <laughs> So thank you for not saying. Were you scared (laughs) when the actors started talking? I mean, I'm still not used to it. I mean, I have been known, especially if I spend a lot of time watching silent films, silent film festivals, go down the local multiplex and jump out of my seat at surround sound. That's just unnatural. (laughs) That's just weird. Um, So I did not see a silent film for a long time. I I wasn't really particularly into films as a kid. Um, Obviously, there were things that caught my eye. But I think I saw my first silent film when I was a student, a teenager in sixth form, film studies A-level class, and we watched Unshan Andalou, the surrealist, quite violent, bizarre, psychosexual, surreal nightmare uh, film by uh, Brunoil and Dali. And that was because we were studying David Lynch. And I thought, ugh, that's horrible. Brilliant, but it's very unpleasant. But, you know, I think when something has such a reaction in and you think, I suddenly realised that I'd not watched silent film. And the more I sort things out, you know, you go and get a VHS and Nosferatu here, I realised that these films were really beautiful, really powerful. And having done the tiniest bit of film history in my films for these A-level, I began to realise that thinking about the silent era was so much more interesting than thinking, for me, thinking about more recent cinema. You know, we talked a lot about films from the 70s, obviously an amazing period for cinema. But when you talk about how those films were made and how they were received, it felt pretty much like how modern films were made. And I liked the era, the era of mystery around silent cinema, actually. And that's what kept pulling me back towards the films. And then, of course, you find the beauty of the films. I find it so it's such a big world because it's often cinemas you know broken down into such a, a small bracket like you know french new wave or something which is country films from a particular country at a particular time silent cinema is global and it's you know it's a good you know, 20 30 years worth of material yeah you know i guess if you think about it like that it can be quite a gargantuan task to sort of navigate uh, your way through it yeah and you know i mean about 80 percent of it is lost so we haven't got much left 
but the variety we have and there's always something interesting to discover so yeah i mean it really is you know a silent cinema is history it's decades of cinema it's not a genre at all if you like comedy if you like horror basically the only thing that the silent era didn't invent is the musical and they had a go to be honest i guess with that it was the there was a live musical performance with with silent cinema so the music was was part of it just not on on film yeah absolutely absolutely music was part of silent cinema and so you would often have dance sequences and things like that in films that were clearly meant to be played with a particular kind of music um and and to get really nerdy during what we call the silent era, there were many, many experiments in sound cinema and they would always be focused around music. And the reason that people brought in sound was to provide music. That was what they thought was missing. It, they weren't so desperate for dialogue. They were desperate for music. When a filmmaker tries to sort of do a new, I guess, take on silent cinema, I guess, most famously, The Artist a few years ago, is that something that is, you know, is exciting for you? Or are you a bit like, oh, guys, come on, we did it so well back in 1920 why are we doing this today i mean that's always an interesting one i mean something like the artist is a, is a great example because it was so popular and you know i could never be angry at that film because people were talking about silent cinema and it was a, it was a wonderful time for me so it was a wonderful time <laughs> I, I have lots of opinions about the artist that we don't need to get into but one of the things that i loved about that film is that it did it did take silent cinema quite seriously it wasn't trying to show any of these sort of falsehoods about silent cinema about bad acting and too many title cards and sped up footage and things like that i think it sort of loses its nerve it loses its faith in silent cinema towards the end so it's not a perfect film for me but that's great i think generally filmmakers engage with the silent era in lots of ways you know you have you know i remember um almodovar wanted to make the skin i live in as a silent film which an idea that haunts and enthralls me. Um, obviously, he'd made a kind of silent parody in one of his other films. Quite often, I find resonances with the silent era in modern films. You know, I just watched that Christopher Nolan film. Can't remember the name. Uh, and, you know, it just made me think of, like, some of the earlier special effects and uses of Rewind. And it basically made me think of the Lumiere Brothers, for which I have been teased. But I have put it on my <laughs> blog, nevertheless. I think you're sort of seeing it sort of more and more in in terms of like you know tom cruise always makes a big thing about he does all of his own stunts and actually you know when you're watching people like keaton or harold lloyd or charlie chaplin you're like yeah all right yeah i know they're all doing their own stunts and you know the people did get injured and people still get injured and whether it's um you know a historical record or whether it's contemporary publicity for the new mission impossible movie i'm always slightly dubious <laughs> of the claim that people really do do their own stunts we know that Bastonique keaton broke his neck uh, filming Sherlock Jr. So I suppose he, he gets off scot-free. But uh, I mean, it's what, you know, what what do you think the art of acting entails? I mean, for some people, the art of acting in a silent film, or, or a film as they would call it, I guess, um, would be to do stunts. Whereas, you know, perhaps we think what beautifully enunciating dialogue is what actors are paid to do now. Well, yet again, I refer you to the latest Christopher Nolan film. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I mean, I could have done with some uh, subtitles track on, on that, I have to say. <laughs> a little intertitle here and there. So for this podcast, Pam, I gave you a little bit of homework. Ooh. How how did you respond to to the challenge of picking just one under 90 minute film? How did you approach this? Well, I thought it was going to be easy, which is definitely a good way to approach all homework. I thought all the films I like are short. I mean, I all my favourite films seem to be like 70 minute features and so forth. And I thought I was going to get you some pre-code or some silent feature. And then I started to think about it and I started to think about what would be available, what people could watch. And... So that did put a little, you know, hitch in my giddy up there. But <laughs> then I narrowed it down to a great masterpiece of cinema, which I, I suggested to you and you 
told me you watched it, it was marvellous, but I think I might have gone a little bit too downbeat for the joy of the 90-minute film festival. So instead of that film, which I contend looks sad but actually has moments of levity, I snuck past you a really funny, joyous-seeming film that actually is incredibly depressing. So I, I feel like I won. I, I won a little trick. Uh, that's some masterful uh, film programming there. I loved your approach to the curation of this. <laughs> <laughs> Overthinking it. Pam, what film did you choose for our festival? I have chosen my favourite film by one of the world's greatest film directors. I've chosen Charlie Chaplin's The Circus from 1928. The Little Tramp is hired by a circus and soon becomes the main attraction when his comedic blunders drive the crowd wild. Yet he himself is unaware of his newly acquired eminence due to his tunnel vision of love for the ringmaster's daughter. The circus features one of the most memorable appearances by The Little Tramp, where Chaplin delivers a whirlwind of visual gags that are quite literally show-stopping. I think that's more or less it. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> he, he, he's unaware that he's such a hit, partly because he's being manipulated by an evil boss. You know, there's always this kind of like social tension in, it, in a Charlie Chaplin film. It's not just love, but he's an exploited worker. Um, he's, he's hired as a prop man in this circus. So um, just to elaborate on that plot slightly, uh, he accidentally runs, running from the law one day, uh, our lovable tramp runs into the big top, runs into the the ring i guess of the circus and starts being hilarious and basically the, he is hired by the circus or they attempt to hire him as a clown but he can't be funny on purpose he can only be funny by accident so they hire him hire him as a property man and he makes everyone laugh every night but they're not paying him properly um he also falls in love with the ringmaster's daughter who he, the ringmaster is also treating her terribly she's very sad um but there is a handsome tightrope walker who is his love rival. So things do not look good for the tramp. The Circus was released in 1928, written, produced and directed by Charlie Chaplin. Uh, Chaplin is also credited with writing the score and it's 76 minutes long. I know. Oof, that's superb runtime. I thought I might win points for that. I didn't realise when I and I chose it that I had chosen the earliest film in your film festival. And now it's surely got to be one of the shorter entries as well. Yeah, I think on the, I guess it's sort of that, that Venn diagram of short plus early, you're, you're definitely the winner. So I think it's nice, like we're doing, you know, this is a, if you look at the films in our film festival, we've got everything now from 1928 up to 2008, uh, 2018 oh, wow. even. You know, 90 years of film, all under 90 minutes long. A joy! That's incredible. What's the film from 2018? You Were Never Really Here, the Lynn Ramsey <gasps> film starring Joaquin Phoenix. A brilliant film. And every bit as cruel and sad and depressing as The Circus. Obviously, Charlie Chaplin is heavily involved in this, doing most of the jobs behind the camera, the major jobs, and, and also in front of the camera. But there's a there's sort of a contemporary cast who I don't really know much about. Are there any other stars in here who fans of silent cinema might, might also spot? Um, no. Basically. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, Charlie Chaplin is a whole show here, really. I mean, so the girl is played by Myrna Kennedy, who was a friend of Chaplin's wife. Now, at the beginning of, shooting, of making this film, he was married to Lita Gray. By the end of it, he'd undergone one of the most hideous public humiliation divorces that the, you know, the gossip columns have ever known. So that must have been awkward. She went on, actually, to appear in lots of musicals. She was a dancer and a singer, and she married Busby Barclay. So, I mean, she's quite yeah. a... She's an important person, but she's not really what you think of as a star, partly because she died young. The love rival, for example, is played by Chaplin Standin. Amazing. He's a journalist. He's a journalist. He did lots of jobs, including being the stand-in. And then there's a few other sort of familiar faces from Chaplin films. But basically, the entire point of a Chaplin film is that every role is Chaplin. I mean, the way he would direct 
is he wouldn't say, oh, you know, stand over there, you know, punch him. He would show people how to do it. And they he would not be satisfied until they'd done it exactly the way that he had done it. Hitchcock's actors were cattle and Chaplin's maybe were puppets. Um, you know, it's Chaplin, Chaplin, Chaplin all the way through. Yeah, it must be exhausting. It was, it was. He would be drained by these films. And this is the film that famously he barely mentioned in his autobiography. It's as if he never made it. Because of all the terrible things that happened, you know, the set burnt down and things like that. And there was a storm and he had to go back and do reshoots. And then all the stuff with his wife, which was just beyond grim. And we don't need to get into in this family-friendly podcast. So it was a terrible time for him. But, you know, the film, I think, is incredible. And also, I guess it paid off. I think at the time it was a big financial success. Yeah. I think lots of, it seems to be reported as one of the like, highest grossing silent films of all time. Charlie Chaplin's stardom in the 1920s was such that it would be unthinkable if this film wasn't a hit. And I think it is, you know, it has everything you expect from a Charlie Chaplin film. He is in, he's on the, the losing corner of a love triangle. So there's tragedy here, but also there's incredibly funny moments and, and brilliant funny moments. I contend that this film contains the greatest Chaplin gag ever committed to film. Oh, well, I think you have to you have to enlighten us. Well, anyone who's watched the film will know. They, they, will, they will know, they will agree with me entirely that um, the, there's a joke very near the beginning of the film where he's on the run from the law and he runs into the fun affair and he runs into a sort of uh, you know Noah's Ark type thing that has automatons and he pretends to be an automaton first to hide and then it means that the chap that he you know has got beef with is standing next to him so he can turn around and biff him on the head with a stick the genius of this joke i think is i mean it's obviously very funny because a man gets hit on the head until he falls over that's, (laughs) that's very funny but it's very funny it's the motions that charlie chaplin goes through are so meticulously perfect you genuinely i'm sure at least the first and second time i saw it i thought maybe they've got a little model in he he is so mechanical and so many people notice this about Chaplin. The control over his moments of movements was incredible. Plus also, as he realizes what he's doing and he's getting away with, in perfect automaton style, he manages to let out this roar of silent, cruel laughter. And that's one of because I always think, you know, people think about slapstick and they think that it's clowning. They can't say it without calling it crude, or if it's been done by a you know big name like Chaplin, then they call it balletic. You know, slapstick is neither of those things. Slapstick is very sophisticated and difficult, and it's also incredibly violent. It's Commedia dell'arte. It's named after the, the stick that went thwack when you pretend to hit someone. Slapstick is about nearly killing someone and getting away with it. It's about that realisation that you've just seen some terrible act of violence, but actually it's going to be okay. It's tragedy comedy. It's like watching a horror film and seeing someone's face peeled off and realising that it's okay because you've seen it now and in the back of your mind you know it's a film. You know, it's really that kind of dark and... That's what's so great about the automaton joke. I mean, it makes you, um, you know, soil yourself with laughter, but it's also incredibly clever and vicious. Um, and it's not even, you know, there are so many, there are so many great jokes in this film that, that rival it, but that to me is the best one. That was the bit where I, when I was watching this, it just made me write down like Chaplin's physicality. Like he holds himself so well during that scene. And you're right, like it, he could easily be a, an automaton himself because um, he's next to, I think there are real sort of automatons on, in the shot as well. And he's perfectly yeah. in time with the automated figures around him. I mean, you think by this time, you know, obviously there'd appeared like a kind of mechanical Charlie Chaplin in Ballet Mechanique, the, you know, the art house film, but also, you know, his he was the, the face that had been mechanically reproduced all around the world. The idea that there were Chaplin dolls and Chaplin toys and Chaplin pictures and posters everywhere was one of the sort of scary things about Chaplin. There's a famous story in the teens that there was one day in the world where 
people across the world mass hallucinated seeing Charlie Chaplin because his image had been proliferated so many times. And of course, the gag, which the circus plays on beautifully when he um, there's a bit where he sort of tries to be funny for the clowns in the, in the big top and he does the trademark Chaplin walk with his knees right out and his feet right out. And they say, no, that's not funny at all. And it reminds you of that famous, probably apocryphal story about Chaplin entering a Chaplin impersonation competition and not winning. <laughs> the reason I don't believe that story is that I think he would do it, but I think he would win. <laughs> you'd, you'd hope so. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, there's something terrifying about it you know, that one person's image could be so instantly recognisable everywhere. It hadn't really happened before the, sort of the, cha- the fame of people like Charlie Chaplin in the teens. So... And then, of course, he runs straight from the automaton gag into the Hall of Mirrors. Mind-blowing. It, it's brilliant. It's so clever. And it, it plays on everything that's excellent about Charlie Chaplin. And also, just it's just very funny. And it means that there can be a man with a gun, and it's quite scary, but it's also quite safe because you're sure he's not going to shoot at the real Charlie Chaplin. This is quite a blockbuster opening uh, for the movie, which I, I sort of love. Like, There's a lot of spectacle front-loaded. You don't have to wait for a big, you know, big set piece at the end. This has got you know, all of these amazing sort of scenes just sort of dotted throughout it, including these two standout bits at the front, which is quite, you know, for a 76-minute film as well, like, it, it just flies by because of that. And of course, the thing is that, you know, that, that there's many, many, because there's literally whole sequences in the middle of this film which are devoted to saying, this is funny, like, basically, try out a prank, trying out a joke, and it's funny that he gets it wrong, or it's funny that they get it right, or he does something that's not meant to be funny, but it's hilarious. So the whole film is just saying, this is funny, this is funny, and... I mean, the climax, the climactic joke of this. I just watched it now and I have seen this film many, many times and I was howling at my desk. <laughs> and I'm honestly not someone who laughs easily at films, but Charlie Chaplin on a tightrope with a suitcase of monkeys on his shoulders. It's, uh, it's Again, it's, like, it's that proper sort of spectacle. That performance on the tightrope is remarkable. You know, just think of all the things he has to contend with <laughs> during that sequence so he uh, prances onto the tightrope with confidence because he thinks he's he's rigged it so he's going to be fine but we know that he, that you know that safety net has gone that was the germ of the film for him that's what he he sort of had this idea wouldn't it be funny wouldn't it be great if i was up somewhere high and i couldn't get down and i had something encumbering me like some monkeys um i think he was trying to think of something like you know the harold lloyd safety last film where he's hanging off the clock you know so he thought this and it's kind of what we'd call thrill comedy you know which obviously is a different version of slapstick which is about doing something exciting a big stunt and it is a big stunt and it's done by a split screen so you can see the audience below him and he was only four feet off the floor but it looks very realistic and it's just unstoppably funny the moment that the monkeys get loose I, I've, I've never been able to control myself. I think there's a monkey tail in his mouth at one point. <laughs> and I just, I, I, I don't know why that's funny. I mean, maybe, maybe it's a failing on my part. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't treat monkeys that way. Maybe you shouldn't treat people that way. But yeah, it's just hilarious. And I've never watched it with a group of people without people rolling, rolling and clutching stomachs. I was going to ask if you remember the first time you watched this. You no, know, I don't. That's really odd, isn't it? I think I remember 
breezing through it one time when I was a student thinking oh this chapter is long but it's not one of the big ones so like it won't be a big deal and I remember thinking oh I actually think it's quite funny as if that was some massive revelation that chapter was funny because you know I think like everyone I had this thing a lot of people but a lot of people think that Charlie Chaplin is too sentimental too old-fashioned too Victorian and moralistic and they wouldn't like it and they will tell you with pride that they prefer Buster Keaton say well I don't take favorites between them but you know, I watch Charlie Chaplin films for a living. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, he just never comes across that way to me. I'm always floored by how modern, how vicious, how exciting, how dynamic they are. And I don't, I see sentimentality, but I always see it used well within the films. And actually, this is one of his least sentimental films. It's pretty brutal. You know, it does, it's maybe not necessary for this story. I mean, the... the Manica Kennedy's character, you know, the girl, she is an abused young woman, you know, it's very sad. But then it's funny, she immediately starts stealing his food as well. You know, and there is a lot of sentimentality and the ending of the film is obviously very poignant when he lets the, um, am I allowed to say? Oh, no, I, I, think, I think it's 80, was it 90 years old? I think we're okay to spoil. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. 92 years ago, this thing happened. Oh, <laughs> really messed me up. Oh, when he lets the circus wagons drive off without him. And even then, actually, he sort of saves it because then, you know, he's sad, he's alone. He's standing surrounded by nothing where there was once this sort of temple of fun and the woman he loved and all that kind of thing who he's given up. He's nobly given up to someone else. Um, but then he, when he walks off, he... he you know, we have to see Chaplin walk off into the sunset. But, you know, he walks off with a kind of jaunt, jaunty, kind of optimistic, as if, you know, easy come, easy go. You know, he's going to go off and be himself and, and find the next adventure. Uh, it's only us that might be hooked up on the idea that we really wanted him to marry the girl. I sort of feel like that ending actually acknowledges that this character is this sort of transient character who is dropped into these adventures, almost like, I don't know, like a series of like cartoons or something, you know, like, yeah, or or I guess, you know, James Bond films in later years. Like, it's not one continuing serial. These are standalone adventures and he needs to be unattached at the end for him to have another adventure. It's one of the things that a lot of people interpret the ending as being a lot to do with the idea that maybe Hollywood has moved on without him. They've embraced the sound era and Chaplin was always, you know, famously, you know, against sound, against dialogue. He could have, he could have made this into a talking picture while he was shooting it. Lots of people did things like that at this time, but he didn't. And of course, three years later, the release of um, City Lights is well into the sound era and he, uh, he that's basically a silent film. In fact, the, you know, the tramp doesn't speak really and you know i mean he doesn't even really properly speak in in modern times you know so you know we're, we're waiting for the great dictator and oh the most famous speech in cinema history for him to really start gabbing <laughs> <laughs> just um i guess for people who maybe haven't seen many charlie chaplin films the the, the tramp is is this you know sort of persona who's who's in many of, of the films well people have only seen charlie chaplin as the tramp on screen is did he ever play any other characters I, i'm actually really not sure about sort of his 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 range at this point when he was hired at keystone he made you know one or two films in a slightly different persona but basically the tramp the tramp was him all the time um there are films that sort of don't seem like it like in in 1am he, he plays a sort of rich guy who comes back from a night's drinking and can't get to bed because he's so hammered and that's basically another routine he learned on stage I think but more or less the tramp was Chaplin and Chaplin was the tramp but of course you remember he was so famous that it's like saying you know Daniel Craig is James Bond but we also know what Daniel Craig looks like so he was also known you know as himself but more as a celebrity you know who'd founded United Artists and always had the most beautiful women in Hollywood on his arm and was always you know you know out well out during the war and raising money for things so you know 
Charlie Chaplin and the Tramp were two separate identities that the public were very, very familiar with. Whenever I think of Charlie Chaplin, I always think of him in his Tramp costume. But when you're reminded he's this successful megastar and you know such a hit with the ladies, you're like, <laughs> you just think he's of him in his costume. But of course, that's not <laughs> it's not what he wore all the time. But I have to constantly remind myself of that. I mean, there's a joke in, in Show People, one of those Hollywood films about Hollywood, where the joke is that Marion Davis's character doesn't recognise Chaplin, and it's not because he's not dressed as the Tramp. It's it, the joke is everyone recognizes this man. She just sort of, you know, is meant to be some kind of rude or an innocent that doesn't doesn't recognize him. But yeah, properly famous. I mean, properly, properly famous. <laughs> it's probably like like we have so many stars now, and there's so many ways for people to to be famous. But at this time, there wasn't as much competition. It wasn't as saturated a, a market, and and this you know silent cinema was universal in that it could be exported all over the world. So it's kind of incomprehensible, really, you know, how famous he would have been at the time. Yeah, well, if you think about someone else who might be famous for their achievements or their status or their you know position as being a politician or a great athlete or something, their pictures would be in the paper, and that you know, but then once film came along you know, people would be on screen for 15, 25 minutes at a time and that would be everywhere. And, you know, people got a lot more famous. Also, then newsreels got, you know, politicians and athletes. So, you know, it, it, it's a way of being famous and being a figure in motion and being more, people being more intimate with your image than they had been able to be before. Uh, you know, newspapers and magazines obviously make people famous. I'm not suggesting that people didn't recognise, you know, world leaders and so on. But yeah, you know, if you, if you were... Tom Mix or Mary Pickford, everyone around the world knew what you looked like. And what to expect from your films as well, because they pushed a very tight line with these things. There would be no question of, uh, you know, deviating from what people wanted you to make. And they just made so many films in such a short space of time. Like, I know this, this film had lots of delays because of the things we talked about, but, you know, it was still basically completed in a year. And that's with, you know, the worst year of Chaplin's life to contend with and all of these sort of personal issues. You don't have to wait sort of five years for the next Chaplin film. <laughs> yeah, it was around one a year, wasn't it, at this point? Well, I mean, not for him so much, because um, there was a point when he was making like the one realism, and the two realism, and the teens where he was churning them out like crazy. You're absolutely right. So there were so many films. At that point when he nails down his celebrity, that's what you get. Then it starts taking longer because he was a perfectionist, because he um, started his own studio with Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and D.W. Griffith. So that was intended to give star producers, star directors, this kind of automatic over making things and he was never afraid to take as long as it, it, it took you know he and he was not afraid to cast scenes out of his films or gags that didn't work or any you know any kind of detail so at this point he's famous but you are waiting to see a Charlie Chaplin film you know and yeah I mean I don't want to I don't want to say something too sweeping but in 1928 if you had talkies which would have been the rage you know the new thing they weren't necessarily all very good because people were getting to grips with the technology. So to have a sublime Charlie Chaplin silent comedy, I mean, people would have been just delighted. They would have been just thrilled to have something that was perfect. Um, you know, there are many great films came out in 1928. And I think if we broke it down, we'd probably find that more of them that year that were great were silent than sound because, you know, people were adept in one medium and not quite yet in the other. So uh, yeah, it would have been an anticipated film release. Hello folks, I am Sam. And I'm Martin. And if you're listening to 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, you are listening to the 90 Minutes or Less Film <laughs> Festival, by the way, you are clearly a fan, a connoisseur, if you will, of podcasts with a very, very specific format and remit. And song by song, 
I can tell you is the podcast for you. Every week for the last five years, we've been talking about the musician Tom Waits. He's a gravelly voice singer behind such songs as Way Down in the Hole, Downtown Train, uh, I Don't Want to Grow Up. And the gravelly voiced actor behind such films as uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Shortcuts and other films, which some of which have a 90 minutes runtime. We're about to launch into our 17th, 17th season. You don't have to listen to all of it, but why not jump in with us uh, to his album Mule Variations, a 1999 classic, which won him a Grammy and... Uh, opened up his music to a broader audience so if you'd like to open up your ears to a broader selection of podcasts <laughs> why not check us out at songbysongpodcast.com or put song by song into your podcatcher of choice just on on the actual circus elements i love you know like you see you see all aspects of the circus in this film good and bad um you know they don't shy away from the working conditions of, of course which i think is quite important for chaplin but he also he's so good at you know going through all of the various sort of acts to see charlie chaplin who you know is such a funny person on screen with a bunch of clowns doing the clowning routine where they they do like a barbershop scene um and they do a william tell um scene um it was i just I, that was a joyous sort of scene i could have watched chaplin plus clowns for uh, you know 76 minutes myself yeah absolutely i mean you know that would have been the the, the hot sell of the film but he'd been clowning on stage with some of the best and most demanding people for like 25 odd years at this point and on screen then of course i mean he'd been working with the you know great comedy troupe since he was a very young boy i think his his first appearance on stage was just in the 19th century but yeah once he started being you know part of the fred carno troupe and things like this and a lot of this draws on his memories of you know his early days traveling the british musicals as a young boy you can imagine you can imagine the shenanigans um, and also the way in which some of these comedy routines would have been drilled into them and how you'd always want to be doing something to stand out from everyone else. Uh, so, yeah, this film gets very personal really quickly. There's even bits where he's negotiating his wages and things like that, which, you know, you know, <laughs> would have cut cut to him. <laughs> yeah. There's also, I guess, in terms of you know, lots of comedy, but also and, and we talked about the spectacle, but some something you know some things are not sort of spectacular shots but just the sheer act of it is spectacular and i'm thinking of chaplin in the cage with the lion is it a lion or a tiger yeah, it's a lion, a it's lion. A lion. Yeah. Yeah. chaplin in a real cage with a real <laughs> a big cat it's pretty scary it tells you something about this film that no one refers to it as the lion film or the film in which chaplin is in a cage with a lion because there's so many spectacular things happening and obviously that was you know quite an endeavor and pretty scary and you know obviously i mean you know one of the things that's really sad about circuses which you know the film touches on in many ways is obviously the animals are sedated and mistreated and things like that so let's not think too deeply about how they were shot but it's a brilliant sequence and it's partly because chaplin sells it so well so brilliantly well i'm sort of comparing it in my brain to in bringing up baby you know another film with a big cat but it's famously you know you can see the camera trickery um these days and in this you know there is no trick i mean you know a may west in i'm no angel you know things like that putting her head in the the mouth of the line yeah I, it, it's just beautifully done and it's perfectly done everything that he does is immaculate and uh, also very funny. Yeah, the lion. I, the lion is always the last thing I think of. And yeah, of course, it's a, mo a monumental moment. I think the title card that comes up afterwards is like, I told you they were dangerous. 
You mentioned that Chaplin maybe wasn't as big a fan of this film, um, not mentioning it as autobiography. I think it was withdrawn from circulation for quite a long time. But he did go back to it to re-record the score. Is that something he did a lot with his with his earlier films? Well, once he realised that he could record a score, then he wanted his music on it. He had that kind of perfectionist mindset. So you know, he would go back and he would do the score. And I mean, you know, the first time he wrote a score for a film was City Lights, and no one thought he could do it. He wasn't a trained musician. He couldn't read music. But he hired someone who could work with him and get, jot down what he was thinking so he had very set ideas about what he wanted to do one of the things that's really bizarre if you watch the circus now is that it opens with an opening that it wouldn't have had at first it's this wonderful footage of Myrna Kennedy on the trapeze looking so sad so sad um, which is from the middle of the film and we have the older Chaplin recorded in the late 60s singing this song he's written which is about optimism and if there's ever been anything sadder in the world it's an old man singing a sad song about optimism while a young girl looks terribly terribly melancholic on a trapeze in a black and white film I mean there is something about the aesthetics of black and white film set in circuses which I've always loved you know with the vendors and and things like that Um, but that opening is so bizarre and it's it's like having you know this is what feeds into the ending it's like having a chap look back at the end of his career and assess it you know was he really a clown was he really happy was he really funny all these ideas about what Chaplin must have thought about his early work come into your head almost unbidden at the very beginning of that song swing little girl swing high to the sky and don't ever look at the ground If you're looking for rainbows look up to the sky You'll never find rainbows if you're looking down where would you recommend uh, fans of the circus go after this film? If Maybe if this is your first Chaplin film, where should we go next? Where should you go next? I mean, um, I think that the obvious thing to do is just to have a little binge. I would have a little binge. So I would go and find some of the early shorts. So things like Easy Street or The Cure or The Floor Walker and just have a good old belly laugh. And then, you know, you can get into the films because the films do have Apart from the circus, the films do have a sort of sentimental side and it's the kind of thing that might be off-putting, but you need to fortify yourself with some laughs and know before you go into City Lights or The Kid, both of which are hilarious and brilliant, or, you know, modern times, that that's what you're going to get. You know, you just need to remember that he's always going to make you laugh whatever else he does. Any of the feature films will lead you to the next one. You can't watch just one Charlie Chaplin feature. I'm, I always find um, the sort of last few films of Chaplin sort of a little bit disturbing because he just looks so different <laughs> um, to them. But how do you how do you view you know sort of his his later films? I'm thinking like A King in New York and uh, Limelight. Limelight, and, I yeah, love. Yeah, yeah. Limelight, I really love. I mean, it's very sad and it's very much a companion to the circus. But I wouldn't recommend you go straight into it from the film just in the same way that i wouldn't necessarily recommend you go straight into the great dictator which is brilliant but you know it's entirely a sound film and you know i'm trying to keep people away from that stuff i'm trying <laughs> to keep them off the hard stuff and and you know into the the safe world of silent cinema you know you, you know you're not you're not ready for that not ready for talkies yet they'll addle your brain they'll stunt your growth <laughs> um i do not like say a king in new york as well as i like the silent films not not by a long long chalk um what's interesting i think if you are 
wavering with chapters to maybe try something like Monsieur Verdoux where he plays a serial killer and just to see whether you, you it's it's just the comedy or whether it's him himself that you you don't get on with they're never entirely bad are they it's Charlie Chaplin films and Limelight of course does have the great duet with um, Buster Keaton which, and is an even sadder film about clowns there we have it the circus is in our 90 minutes or less film festival the earliest film and first silent film very excited by that i don't think it's quite the shortest but it's up there it's up there with the shorter films it's in the 70 minute club oh i'm so pleased i'm absolutely honestly thrilled thrilled and you know i'm sure chaplin would be thrilled too he wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't be impressed in slightest but you know i am we're going to put this film on at our festival. We are going to basically give you a blank check to dress the venue. I can give you a print of the movie and, and, and a slot at the festival. But how would you how would you like to, you know, dress, decorate uh, the venue where we might be showing this? Well, hold up. First of all, silent cinema is the most immersive of all cinema because you like make a deeper connection with the images when you have to like content, you know have to meet the film halfway. So yeah, we're immersive. We're immersive. Also, I'm going to take your blank check and I'm going to test the limits of that check because I need an orchestra. <laughs> I need an orchestra because I want an orchestra, but also I need an orchestra because you cannot show this film without the score. That's just that's just the law of the Chaplin Society. Like it's not it's not makeup. I don't know the rules. So you need a full orchestra and you need to play Chaplin School, I think, to show this film, I'm pretty certain. Obviously, we're going to play it in a big top. Obviously, we're going to get Vin Vendors to introduce it and talk about influence on Angels of Desire. He, he'll be happy to, in a heartbeat. But I thought maybe if you really wanted to be intellectual about it, we could get some actual circus clowns to come up and do a Q&A afterwards. Because like, I don't want to upset you, Sam, but everyone who made the film was dead. They're all brown bread. They're not coming to do a Q&A. So I thought we'll get some actual circus clowns to talk about whether they think it's on the money, absolutely harrowing, a work of fantasy. You know, I want to know what the clowns think. Yeah, that would be, I think, uh, our first Q&A with some real-life clowns. That'd be quite fun. I hope they have all of those responses, actually, you know, on stage. <laughs> so you really go around, they get the 360 sort of take on on clowns in this picture. If you were hosting this Q&A, maybe like halfway through, would you just release a box of monkeys and see how they react? Have you not seen my Q&A technique? <laughs> oh, it's on the rider. Sorry, yeah. I missed that. Yeah. This is a bit by <laughs> South Bank on the regular, the tightrope, tightrope or monkeys, one of the two. Either my guests have to be on a tightrope or they're going to contend with the monkeys. I won't make them do both they're not chaplain well that's good you're a reasonable host <laughs> very, very very fair woman uh, okay, well, this is going to be a chaotic but brilliant screening. Yeah. I, I, I love it. Now, you know, the film, is, it's not a particularly long film, but you could still feel a bit peckish um, in a 70-plus minute runtime. What, what's, what's the ideal snack to go along with the circus? Well, I'm fairly lenient about what snacks people have. That, you know, I've, I, you know I believe in a bit of fair choice. But if you notice something about the food in this film, the only food you're really allowed to eat is food that you have stolen from someone else. So. Whatever your neighbour has packed is what you're eating. And if you can get it away from them without them noticing, if you can sneak it and, put, and you get extra points and you get to pet the monkeys, if you can steal your food from a baby, as Chaplin does at the beginning of this film. So if you steal food from your neighbour, you're golden. But if you take it from a baby, an actual baby, let that baby howl for it, then 
you get to pet the monkeys. Oh, wow. Okay. This is a, this is, this is a very lively screening, but I also like that we've introduced the, you know, very popular parent baby cinema, um, you know, sort of activity in here as well. I think that's very important, very inclusive. Let's bring the whole family down. The film is a you. Yeah. It's totally fine to bring baby and have its food stolen. I love a bit of sex and violence. Who doesn't? And, you know, there's quite a lot of violence in here, but you know what? How wonderful. This is a you. Anyone can come and it doesn't matter whether you speak English. You know, this is the most inclusive. So that big top going to have to be huge. I'm really testing that blank check. Um, we're going to have such a crowd. And if you have ever had the very great pleasure of watching a Chapman film with a large audience, it is, I mean, that is some fun times. That is a fun, fun time. I mean, it's such a rare treat to see these films on a big screen at all. But if we can make this a really atmospheric, packed screening, you know, let those laughs really laugh. Um, you know, and uh, I'd love to see people, you know, sort of doubling over in the eye or belly laughing at some of the sort of big set pieces in this. That would be truly wonderful. And I guess at the time this was released, cinemas, audiences were bigger. You know, venues were, were larger. Um, you know, 2,000 people in the in the venue wouldn't have been unusual. Whereas now, it is quite rare and also they felt a little bit less inhibited maybe in screenings because um as soon as dialogue came in everyone had to sort of shut up and pay attention in a way they didn't feel they had to before so people were loud in the screenings you know it would have been people shouting you know bring on the funny man no doubt <laughs> or no mate there's some monkeys in that suitcase <laughs> which i'm sure i did watch it once with a group of people where someone was like no when they saw the monkeys and he's like i mean that's that's the job of a comedian done well there we go this is going to be an absolutely incredible screening a very lively show of the circus um very pleased to have it in and i think the you know the event is a hot ticket so so there we have it our first chaplain and we're going to the circus thank you very much pam <laughs> Where can people find out uh, more of what you're what you're up to online? Well, I mean, I'm just normally in the corner with my monkeys, but uh, you mentioned it already. I do have a silent cinema blog, silentlondon.co.uk. Most of the time I'm working on other stuff, though. And so if you go to my Twitter, I'm Pam Hutch, all one word. And I normally publicise the nonsense that I've been working on there. Thank you, Pam. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We are a proud member of the Stripped Media Network and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.